0: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. In July 2015, I had a chance to sit down with Don Winslow and discuss his novels about the Mexican cartels, Power of the Dog and The Cartel, both of which are thinly fictionalized histories of the past two decades' drug wars. Shortly after the interview, it was announced that Ridley Scott would direct a film version of The Cartel. This is the complete 47-minute interview. My guest is Don Winslow, whose latest novel is The Cartel. It's a companion novel, a sequel, but you don't have to read the earlier book, Power of the Dog, because most of the material from Power of the Dog is condensed into the uh, first hundred pages or so of The Cartel. Don Winslow is the author of 13 novels, including Kings of Cool, Savages, The Death and Life of Bobby Z. And we're going to also talk a little bit about uh, the movie career, because it sounds as if the cartel is going to be second of two movies, the first being Power of the Dog. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And um, Savages became A film directed by Oliver Stone which had not opened when I interviewed you for Kings of Cool so we'll talk a little bit about that but most of this interview will be about the cartel I don't know I've read scary books before I've read Stephen King but in many ways this is the scariest book I've ever read because it's true and incredibly violent it's a story of the Mexican drug wars of 2002 to 2012 you said before we went on the air that, in fact, you had to tone it down because the reality is that much worse.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were incidents that, that really happened. Some that, you know, are stories that I wasn't sure actually happened but sounded about right that I just didn't think that a reader could, could handle, could encompass or believe. Uh, so there are chapters in the book and incidents in the book where I, I've backed off, believe it or not, from, from what I believe to be the reality.
0: It seemed to me by the end of the book, I know this is going to sound weird, I began to hate the human race. Does that make sense? You
1: know, it makes absolute sense. You know, writing the book, writing these two books, Power of the Dog and the Cartel, you can start to lose your, your faith in our species. On the other hand, uh, I found some of the things incredibly inspiring about our species, our kind.
0: The people who stayed, the women who fought.
1: The women I mean, that was the huge lesson in all of this research for me is the role of women and the incredible bravery, Richard, and moral fortitude. I don't have that kind of courage.
0: Well, let's go back a little bit, Don Winslow, and talk about the origins of the first book, The Power of the Dog. What prompted you at that point to start writing about the cartels and the Mexican drug war, even though, of course, that even though it's based on research, is more your standard thriller
1: yeah, well, listen i I do write thrillers, and I hope both these books are entertaining, informative, interesting, exciting, scary books. But I never set out to do either of these things to write about the drug cartels, you know, but I live on the border uh, in California and uh, used to go down to these little towns on the beaches and in nineteen ninety eight which now seems like a long time ago to me. There was a massacre of, you know, 19 men, women, and children, innocent people, in a town called El Cazal, by a drug cartel, and I couldn't figure out how that had happened.
0: I understand that's near the village of Rosarito. We yeah. used to vacation.
1: Sure, you know, when you live in the San Diego area, you used to go down to those places for weekends with your family, with your kids, friends. I helped to build a school in in Tijuana. And so I, I was trying to figure out, you know, how does any phenomenon come to the point where that's possible? Now, at the time, 1998, we all thought that was the worst thing that could possibly happen. And boy, were we wrong. So I started to do research on the drug situation. And it, it became such a fascinating story, a big story, an infuriating story, that I started to write Power of the Dog. And then five and a half years later i'm still writing that that book
0: well we'll go into the cartel and the relation between fiction and history but power of the dog how much of that is fiction is it the same as this where the broad outlines are true but the specifics are not or is that more fiction uh
1: virtually everything in both these books is true it's based on reality you know, I want people to understand what went on in Mexico in those years, and you don't need to make things up very much because the actual story is is a thriller and it's so terrifying in, in some ways. No, I stick very close to the bone in both these books. Now, characters I make up, personalities I make up, I might move things, the timelines around a little bit because, you know, novels give us that license, but boy, everything's pretty close to the bone.
0: I think what got me was the most horrible, the worst of the murdering hordes are the soldiers known as Zetas in the cartel. And then I went online, and they exist. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) And they worked for the Gulf Cartel, as they do in the cartel.
1: Originally, yeah. The then head of the Gulf Cartel, now in in prison in in Texas, uh, extradited unlike Mr. Guzman, was having a barbecue, and uh, he invited this uh, officer of special forces in Mexico who were trained in the United States uh, as anti-drug soldiers. And uh, he wanted, this guy wanted bodyguards, and the soldier said, well, if you want the best, we're the best. He deserted, took 30 others with him, and they became known as the Zetas after their radio call signals, Z1, Z2, Z3. Eventually, uh, as a lot of bodyguard units do, they rebelled against their masters, and and instead of being their protectors, became their executioners and, and became the bloodiest, most sadistic of the cartels, which is a high bar to jump.
0: The characters of Art Keller and Adon Barrera, Barrera being the drug lord and Art Keller being the DEA agent who are friends and mean it's the old Ben Hurst story. Sure. You know. Yeah. Uh is there any relationship of that particular story to real life? Was there a DEA agent And a drug lord who were friends?
1: Friends might be a bit of an exaggeration. But, you know, any time that DEA goes in, whether it's undercover or out of cover, they have to build relationships with drug traffickers to get the information. And so this is this constant game that's being played. I don't believe there's ever been, by the way, a major drug figure ever arrested or captured without the cooperation of another major drug figure. And so DEA agents know that when, you know, somebody from the Sinaloa cartel gives them a circuitous tip through a bunch of cutouts about where somebody else is in a rival cartel, that to a certain extent, they're playing that person's game. So the relationship between Keller and Adon, I invented as friends, but there certainly was a very close relationship between the DEA and, and these guys back in the 70s and early 80s.
0: And a lot of the violence from Power of the Dog really happened, sometimes directly, sometimes slightly indirectly.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, when I I was writing Dog, my editor, Sonny Mehta at Knopf, used to write me these memos, you know, and it would say, well, this is a bit over the top. And, And I'd say, Sonny, I agree, but it's what really happened.
0: You came back to Keller for the cartel, and this is after writing Savages, after writing Kings of Cool. And I understand what prompted it is a quote I have from you. It used to be the cartel seemed ashamed of its crimes. It's a different breed of cat now. And this cat puts it on Twitter.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the truth. You know, the, the cartels in the sort of 2004 to 2012 era, which is the bloodiest era, you know, one of the bloodiest conflicts in the Western Hemisphere since the American Civil War, became very media savvy very sophisticated and they realized that they not only needed to control the action they needed to control the narrative and so the internet and various social media became the perfect tool because of its Anarchy, anybody can put anything on with without censors or controls, and they figured that out very quickly that they could put these atrocity videos on photos on propaganda on, and that they would go viral for a variety of reasons and they used that as a tool of terror as a tool of uh, propaganda and, and and sadly
0: recruitment and the violence just exceeded expectations if you want to call it that. When we think of torture, for example, we generally think of it in the Dick Cheney kind as a failed interrogation. But the torture described in the cartel, which is ubiquitous, is just for kicks.
1: Well, yes, it's for kicks because, listen, I mean, of course, a lot of these people are are just psychopaths and sadists, but it serves another purpose, and that's to terrorize. And, And I think that, for instance, by the FBI's definition of terrorism, the Mexican cartels absolutely qualify as terrorists. Terror doesn't work unless people know about it. And so they, they would do these horrible tortures, leave the bodies in public places with banners over them explaining why these people were tortured and or put it out on the Internet. And that had the effect that they wanted of terrorizing the local population, terrorizing the police, journalists and other people uh, to say, we will tell this story.
0: There are several characters and several different stories going on in the in the cartel. It's kind of an epic tale. One of the stories involves a doctor named Marisol, who lives and works in a small town near the American border. The town is vacated pretty much because of the war. Uh, is, is that a real town?
1: It's very closely based on a real town, although I gave it a fictional name, it's based on two or three real towns within sight of the Rio Grande and the Texas border. Yeah, uh, in the Juarez Valley, what happened in those years was that the Sinaloa cartel, Guzman's outfit, were battling the Juarez cartel for control of the smuggling turf, both in the city of Juarez to get on the American highways, but also along the border in the rural area. And in a historical kind of irony, Chapo Guzman did what the Mexican government did back in the 18th and 19th century, colonize the area. The area was originally settled by Mexican settlers to serve as a buffer between Apache and Comanche raiders and Mexican towns. And so they moved military colonists in there. In 2008, 2009, the Sinaloa cartel moved Sinaloan farmers up, tried to move the local Juarez people out to colonize that area.
0: About 100 pages in or less of the cartel, the character of Adán, who is, I guess, semi-based on Goodsman, kind of, uh, escapes from prison. And while I was reading that segment, or maybe a week before, El Chapo escaped from prison and it felt like life was imitating your novel. How did that feel to you?
1: Very strange. Listen, I, I wasn't surprised, and those of us who follow this world were not at all surprised that Chapo escaped. We all said it was just a matter of time, but it was a very weird sensation. The, the passage that you refer to in the book is very closely based on Chapo's 2001 escape from Puente Grande prison barely fictionalized. And so when I got up and I saw a headline that said Drud Lord Escapes, I knew exactly who it was without looking at the story. And then here we go again. And so my phone's been ringing constantly.
0: (laughs) Well, I noticed that uh, they showed images of the tunnel. And the tunnel wasn't just a little tunnel that a prisoner of war might dig. It was this huge operation. And I kept thinking, much like Adon, it sounds as if for a long time he could have walked out because other people had built the tunnel probably from the outside in. Of course, in. Yeah. He could have walked out but chose to stay there and was probably partying just as Adon was partying. I think so. And listen, I don't think he went out that tunnel. If
1: I had to bet on it, I don't think he went out the tunnel. I, I think he went out the front door like he did in 2001. And that tunnel is just a huge diversion and a face-saving cover story.
0: And then I saw an article saying that the Mexican government was in collaboration with him, which, again, is just as in the cartel.
1: Yeah, again, this book is very, very close to life. The Sinaloa cartel has had a cozy relationship with several Mexican administrations. I'm not naming names or saying it goes to the very top, but it goes very high. The other thing about it is that, you know, the Mexicans refuse to extradite Chapo, which is what these guys fear more than anything – Partially, I think, because if Chapo gets extradited to the United States, he only has one deal left to make, and that's to rat out people in Mexican administrations to the Americans. So he has lots of stories to tell about suitcases full of million dollars of cash. I mean, Chapo's been captured many times. He was captured by four high-ranking federal policemen after his previous escape and uh, he left without a briefcase full of four million dollars, which which they cut up. So I think there are a number of people in the Mexican government who rather have Chapo hiding in the hills of Sinaloa than than speaking into a tape recorder in in San Diego.
0: Toward the end of the cartel, Don kind of says, you know, I want to just get out and retire. I have billions of dollars. I don't need it. Do you think El Chapo probably feels that way?
1: I think to some extent he does. I think, again, I'm not an intimate of Chapo Guzman's, but I follow him pretty closely. I think that he is coming of an age. He's somewhere between 57 to 61, where he would like to turn this over to his kids. Now, you know, he had one son who was killed, you know, by an execution squad of 40 people. He had a brother who who was killed in prison uh, because of him. He has a young wife. He married her on his, her 18th birthday. Her Their two twin girls were born in Los Angeles.
0: Hmm, this reminds me of a book I just read. Go ahead. Absolutely. So
1: I think that Chapo might like to turn this over to Ivan, his son. But Ivan reminds me of sort of John Gotti's sons. You know, they're not their fathers. So we'll see what happens, yeah.
0: Don Winslow, in this epic tale, you focus in on certain individuals, I guess, to give a broad outline. So let me ask you about each of them and their relation to reality. Pablo Mora, who comes in about halfway and becomes a major character, is a newspaper man in Juarez. Is he based on anyone? He's not. I made Pablo up, but again,
1: they're very close to reality of what a a newspaper person would experience in Juarez in those years. Pablo, you know, started off as a minor character for me, but I liked him so much and I liked hanging out with him and his buddies so much that in some ways kind of takes over the book for a couple of hundred pages. But no, Pablo is is a fictional guy.
0: And the character of Eddie Ruiz, the American who goes south and is a bit less bloodthirsty than the others, and more or less one he realizes that it's getting out of control he wants out. Is he based on anyone?
1: He's not based on anybody, but certainly his a lot of his actions are inspired by a real guy who was nicknamed Barbie because he dressed like a Ken doll. He was an American high school football star, uh, the first American to head a Mexican cartel. Now his personality in the book and all of that I created because I wanted an ironic voice to be commenting on it in an American kind of a way. And so that character for me was really useful because, again, he's you know he's drawn from somebody who was at the center of these events, but also a guy who had this sort of cockeyed view of it and allowed for a little comic relief in the book.
0: He comes in again, not at the beginning. He comes in about a third of the way in, just as Pablo halfway... At what point did you realize that this thing was growing and growing and growing, or did you always know that?
1: I always knew it. Listen, at the heart of both these books is this vendetta between Art Keller and, and Adon Barrera. That's the through line. That's the laser homing device that I knew that I needed to mix metaphors. It's the spine of the story. But when I was thinking about writing the cartel, I knew it was a big, sprawling story if I was really going to cover those years in Mexico. And I didn't want to see it just through a Don and Art's Eyes because I would turn them each into Zelig. Do you know what I mean? People right. who are sort of irrationally just show up at critical moments. And so when I looked around to look at what are the real watershed events in these years, I knew that I needed other characters. And... The people that you alluded to provided it. A journalist was a natural. Basically, he's doing the same job I'm doing, going out and describing these events. So to see things through his eyes was perfect. And again, to have that sort of American sort of smart-ass take on things uh, from Crazy Eddie was really useful.
0: And then there's Chewy, the, the young child who, again, is not a real person, but it, or is he?
1: When I heard about a 14-year-old hitman, Richard, I assumed that there was one of them. There were at least eight very young people. Chewy is sort of a composite of my imagination, but his actions, again, are, are drawn from real-life events and these real people.
0: There's another character I want to mention here, Adon's girlfriend, Magda, mm-hmm. who tries to connect up the Sinaloan cartel with the europeans is that part of the story putting aside magda who was fictional is that part of the story real at all
1: yeah magda is just barely fictional really yeah magda is drawn again from sort of a composite of three or four women guzman famously had an affair in puente grande prison with a young woman prisoner he also had affairs with a doctor and a guard But uh, no, she's just barely fictional. There were several women who helped to establish or reestablish the Colombian cocaine connection and then went to Europe to sell the the stuff there because cocaine prices in Europe are 30 to 50 percent higher than they are in America. So it's a big bonus.
0: And I would guess that the relationship of the Italians and the Germans is pretty much nonfiction.
1: Absolutely nonfiction. And drageta, the um, Calabresi Mafia, uh, runs uh, the drug trade in Western Europe and other smaller gangs in various countries go through them.
0: Most of the cartel deals, b- beyond these personal stories, deals with the interplay of certain narcos and their various gangs, the Tapias, Ochoa, and Forty of the Zetas. El Gordo was another one. There's a whole bunch of them. Did you kind of have a chalkboard up there and trying to move the pieces around?
1: Constantly. Yeah. Uh, constantly. I had charts and graphs because, you know, these alliances shifted.
0: The new alliances that we see in the book are those real alliances yes. with real people, only you've substituted fictional.
1: Yes, sir. Absolutely. When Chapo Guzman got out of prison the first time, he wanted to reestablish the Federación that he had been the right-hand man in under Miguel Angel Gallardo and others.
0: That's the Sinaloan That's cartel. the
1: Sinaloan cartel. Yeah. And he only wanted to use Sinaloans in the top positions because he trusted them. So that meant that he had to take over the Gulf cartel, the Juarez cartel, and the Tijuana cartel to get those critical smuggling routes. So he launched this big war. And to do that, you needed private armies. And, and because the Zetas had allied themselves with the Gulf cartel, Every other cartel needed these paramilitary units made up of current or former soldiers or current or former policemen. And that's why this war became so militarized and so bloody. But over the course of years, these real alliances, they made peace, they broke up. Sometimes it was over sort of mega economic issues. Other
0: times was strictly personal grudges that split these alliances. Uh, In an interview, you asked the question, where do you cross the line into the pornography of violence? At what point is there enough? And it's all very desensitizing. How did you deal with that in writing the cartel? Yeah, it was difficult.
1: When I started to think about writing the book, when I started to organize the book, I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of violence in the book, obviously. Uh, I mean, there's also love stories in the book and political stories in the book and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But obviously there's violence when you're dealing with this topic. My own experience, you know, for years as an investigator prior to being a a writer is that violence can be desensitizing. You know, uh, it's part of the human condition that we get used to it. So I knew that earlier in the book I would probably write the violence quite directly, put you on the scene and act it out. Later in the book, though, uh, I knew that I had to come at it from different directions. So I I tried a lot, you might notice, sort of late in the book, to not write the scene itself, but to write people's reactions to it, you know. So do the violence offstage to some extent, and then have somebody come onto it and react.
0: Well, there are a couple of characters who are brutally slaughtered, and you avoid... It's late in the book, and we don't want to see what happens to them.
1: Right, right. So I keep it, you know, I keep it off stage, and then refer to it or have somebody come on to it. Yeah,
0: I think if I had read about that happening with those characters, I might not have been able to finish the book.
1: That was my thought as well, you know, because you get to know, I got to know these characters and and these people, and and knowing, you know, that there could potentially be a bad end. Not all of them end that way yeah I thought at some point in time you, you you do back away from it a little bit because I think the emotional impact
0: is already there. The political angle of the cartel I mean, this is capitalism at its absolute worst. There's a point late in the book where it appears the zetas are going after oil, and that's when oil money comes into play, and I kept thinking. You know, the oil people don't care about the slaughter. They just want to protect their money.
1: No, absolutely. And the cartels want to make money. The Zetas really started to branch out. And in fact, by the time that they were in their demise, only about 30 percent of their income came from drugs. The rest came from human trafficking, from stealing oil, uh, from other investments, from kidnapping. They're still around, though. They're still around, but they're, they're not as powerful as they were. Basically, Sinaloa has won the war.
0: And that's why the violence
1: has settled down. Yeah. Listen, eventually every war ends just out of exhaustion and casualties. But uh, I think that the Mexican government, to a certain extent, uh, chose a side, picked a winner. And they picked the least worst, in their view, of the options. There was also a very bitter personal feud between certain elements of the Mexican military and the Americans uh, against the Zetas.
0: For reasons that we see in the cartel?
1: Yes, sir. Those are true stories. The Zetas murdered uh, the family of a soldier who had died in one of these raids, uh, and they came after the funeral and killed his mother, sisters, and brothers. The Zetas also killed an American agent, uh, Jaime Zapata stopped his car and machine gunned the car
0: and that's in the book that's in
1: the book and so both elements of the mexican marine special forces and the american dea and government uh had a very deep and personal grudge against the zetas which was acted out
0: quick question about the content of the cartel as i was reading it even though i know that this fiction there i kept thinking this is history are there books that deal with the actual or is it just too scary to actually name names at this point?
1: Well, there have been a lot of great journalistic books that deal very, very well. I mean, the late Charles Bowden, for instance, a tremendous loss to us, with certain aspects of it. And there are blogs, Blog Del Narco famously that cover this, uh, Insight Crime, Borderland Beat. But there has been no comprehensive book about the entire
0: history of it. Not fiction. (laughs) Not fiction. (laughs) Right. There is also, I would guess, Don Winslow, a political element to your writing the book because at one point you said, people don't comprehend the awful fiscal and human costs of the war on drugs and it's directly responsible for the militarization of our own police force.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think that you can track Ferguson and Cleveland and Baltimore. Back to the war on drugs, because this is when police departments really started to change. And I'm not I'm not making this up. This is what cops tell me, okay? Talk to cops all the time. They're starting to raid houses. They're starting to go into neighborhoods en masse to make massive arrests. Uh, one police chief told me, you know, they cut my community policing funds in half and gave me tanks. And so you can track the alienation between police departments and inner city communities, right back to the crack epidemic of the 80s and the early days of the war on drugs.
0: There's also um, in the cartel a change in the war on drugs in Mexico between the old way of tracking down low-level people and arresting them and assassination, much like the war on terror.
1: Yeah, I think that the war on terror leaked into the war on drugs because we shifted our, our policies in the war on terror, you know, without getting hyper-technical about it. Our old policy on guerrilla warfare and terrorism was called counterinsurgency doctrine, which is basically a defensive doctrine where you protect local communities, you build hospitals, schools, and and then you go after, you know, you try to dry up the terrorists' support, dry up the sea in which they swim. We changed that in Afghanistan and Iraq to counter-terrorist theory, which is cheaper and faster, and that's go out and kill the top guys, whether it's drones, whether it's SEALs, whether it's whatever. So when that philosophy sort of leaked across Washington, uh, D.C., from CIA to DEA... A similar change happened in our thinking about the war on drugs and a similar change happened in Mexico in their thinking about how to solve this problem. And again, the Zetas played a major role in this because you want revenge. These are horrible sadists to do terrible things. And so the idea of going out and assassinating these people basically in the guise of an arrest and a raid, uh, you know, was fine it seems effective which is very bothersome it's not effective though here's the problem listen i shed no tears for dead Zetas. please get me completely right i have no problem uh with these guys six feet under at all and chapo guzman as well by the way but the difference is that in the terrorist groups there's not billions of dollars involved for anyone to take the top spot but in a drug cartel there's always going to be someone willing to step into that dead man's shoes because there are billions of dollars. So since the 1970s, we've been arresting and and killing cartel leaders, really. And, you know, it's just meet the new boss, same as the old boss, except worse.
0: You've said in an interview that the problem is really not Mexico. It's the American reliance on drugs.
1: Well, it's a two-fisted problem. It's the simultaneous reliance on drugs while we try to prohibit them. So we criminalize. We spend billions of dollars buying the drugs. with the largest drug market in the world. But at the same time that we spend billions of dollars trying to prevent them. It's that conflict, that juxtaposition that creates the powers of the cartels.
0: Today while I was doing my research, I stumbled across another quote from you that disturbed me quite a bit. Twenty-somethings will buy only fair trade coffee or local pork yet they'll think nothing of buying marijuana that has blood all over it.
1: Yeah. Listen, I'm very much against recreational drug use, very much against it for that reason. People don't know. It it amazes me. You know, I've seen young people go picket a grocery store, then go to a party and smoke weed that probably, if you look at the numbers, came up from Mexico. Now, what... I guess they don't realize is that weed was very possibly grown by slave labor. These are immigrants now coming up from Central America who've been kidnapped by the cartels. The men often murdered, the women put out in the fields and to prostitution, very often gang raped, killed. And this weed that you're, you know, getting your pleasure from has been brought to you by cartels that have slaughtered tens of thousands of innocent people. So I, I don't know how your grudge against the Starbucks holds up against that, or or people in the Occupy movement who are against big corporations and big pharmaceuticals. Good Lord, what's the Sinaloa cartel if it's not a big corporation and a big pharmaceutical?
0: There's also uh, the role of American capitalism in how this is happening in the border towns where the maquiladoras which were the factories, cheap factories, have all vanished over to China and suddenly you have these thousands of people who were broke, jobless, and starving.
1: Yeah, when you, when you go along these parts of the borders, you know, you used to find these big factories. Now they're all in, in China uh, for even cheaper labor. And what had happened is a lot of people from the south of Mexico had moved up to the borders to get those jobs. And when the Maquiadores left, now you have these enormous colonias, these slums, with no employment, no work, obviously high poverty, a starvation level of living. And those kids are the perfect target for recruitment as soldiers, scouts, spies, and mules for the cartels.
0: And that's where the a lot of the little children come from, I would guess. No, yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. It's a real
0: human tragedy. So what do we do? I mean— Does it help to legalize marijuana in Colorado, for instance?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. Since it's been legalized in two states, the importation of Mexican marijuana has dropped by almost 40%. So think this through. (laughs) By stopping fighting the war against that drug in two states after 44 years of the war on drugs, we have started to win the war against that drug. Because the Sinaloa cartel has basically now said marijuana is not worth it to us. We can't compete with American prices and quality. The downside of it, they've increased their production of heroin, increased its potency, lowered its price in a very deliberate effort, successful, to undercut American pharmaceuticals of oxycodone and those kind of drugs. So when you read about this heroin epidemic, what you're really seeing is that people who used to be hooked on those pills uh, can get cheaper Mexican heroin.
0: In um, that same interview, you said that... uh it sounds kind of liberal, but maybe we need to, to look at what's causing so many Americans to take drugs. Yeah. What an idea, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, a, what a thought. Yeah, look, if we stopped the war on drugs tomorrow, we'd save $46 billion a year, give or take. If we taxed it at the same rate, we tax cigarettes and alcohol, by far the biggest killers among substances by far. We'd get another $47 billion, give or take. That's a lot of money every year. And maybe, I don't know, call me crazy, we could fix our inner city schools. We could build businesses and factories. It wouldn't matter if they made a profit, by the way. We'd still be in the black and give people jobs. We could give more treatment to addicts. There's all kinds of things that we could
0: do. But the military-industrial complex would not make that kind of money, and neither would the cartels. And you know, money talks in Washington.
1: Well, money money screams in Washington. You know, I, I've said it before, you know, there's a, a crime committed every time a lobbyist and a congressman take a together in the men's room. But The cartels and our justice system and the military-industrial system are in a symbiotic relationship. They need each other. They need each other. If you look at the money that is spent on helicopters, surveillance equipment, guns, tanks, armored cars, all that, go beyond that. What's one of the few growth industries in America now? Prisons. Prisons. Prison construction. So towns that used to compete for factories now compete for prisons so they can get jobs as guards. So it's corrections as capitalism. We've, we've gone into the business of caging our fellow citizens to the tune of 2.3 million of them, the largest prison population in the history of earth. So the justice system, in quotes, around the drug issue is like banks back in 2008, too big to fail. And the cartels and the drug traffickers absolutely rely on that because if you legalize or decriminalize drugs, they're out of business. So they are in an absolute symbiotic relationship. They're the sheepdog and the coyote, and, and dissembling that is, is going to be wicked.
0: Does that make Dianne Feinstein, who was in favor of the war on drugs— kind of a mass murderer in a way?
1: Well, I wouldn't go as far as to call Diane Feinstein a mass murderer. But, you know, one of the points of the book, The Cartel, is that we're all the cartel. You know, that in in a number of ways, you think of the cartel as being the drug traffickers. But it's a part of a huge system. The coke and stuff comes north. The cash goes south. But then the cash comes north again. And it comes into banks in San Diego and Phoenix and Houston and, yes, San Francisco. And then it gets loaned out as you know, real estate loans and corporate loans. And it gets invested in all kinds of businesses. So the cartel is one big, huge system. And it's not just the drug
0: traffickers. Don Winslow, completely changing the subject. Let's talk about your <laughs> work and movies. Uh, Power of the Dog and the Cartel. Uh, your friend Shane Salerno yeah. has written uh, scripts for those?
1: Yep. He's in the process now, and I've I've read them. I've read what he's done, and they're terrific. Yeah, I think that we're looking at, um, at uh, Dog, Power of the Dog, going into production next year and then followed up a year or so later by the cartel.
0: Why movies rather than... Uh Mini-series.
1: Mini-series, yeah. Been asked that a lot because, you know, you look at two long and complicated books with hundreds of characters and you sort of think mini-series. Um, it's about me and Shane. We want to do big, serious movies that don't necessarily have uh, Spider-Man in them. I-, I want to see one of those big movies it's about something that's about real people that's exciting and tense and action-driven and all that but that's about something
0: savages was directed by oliver stone did you work with oliver stone much uh yeah
1: to some extent you know i mean shane and and me and and oliver you know co-wrote the screenplay I certainly met with Oliver a lot. I wasn't on the set a lot. You know, nobody wants... A, a novelist is sort of the vestigial bone on the body cinema, you know. Right. But I was there. I you know, took Oliver around on, on location scouts. I met a lot with the art design people, and costume design people, and all of that.
0: Uh, what do you think of the film now, looking at it? You
1: know, I basically like it. I do. I mean, the ending's quite different than the ending in the book and the ending that I've always seen. For those of you who know the film and and the book, I mean, in my opinion, those three characters are dead at the end of the story. In Oliver's version in the film, it's uh, a little ambiguous. But, you know, what I I really come to, Richard, on, on this issue is that books and movies can have separate lives. And they're one's not necessarily superior in fear. I think they stand next to each other. Again, to mix metaphors, I think it's like your kids. You know what I mean? They're, they're different, but they kind of look the same, but they can be different.
0: Death and Life of Bobby Z mm. was also a film that must have come and went while I blinked with Paul Walker. <laughs> yeah. What did you think of that one?
1: I wasn't crazy about it. Uh, it went you know straight to video, which is why you didn't see it. Back in those days, I wasn't very involved with the films of my work. And I should have been listen nobody sets out to fail nobody sets out to make a mediocre film everyone tried very hard Paul Walker was a lovely guy a real working class get down to it no whining no star nonsense guy that I liked very much so it was a you know pleasure getting to know him I loved his work ethic So that was all good. But it's so different from a novel. You know, you you sit down and you write a novel and, and, you know, you you work with the editor, but you're pretty much in control of it. But a film, I think so many things have to come together right to make a good film. I think it's very difficult.
0: IMDb doesn't list it, but your website lists Satori is in development with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm.
1: Has been for a while.
0: Is that going anywhere?
1: I don't know. You know, uh, uh, not right away.
0: A couple other questions about the cartel. There's a sequence toward the end of the book where uh, the boy Chewie is kicking a soccer ball, and you said that's based on an individual named La Guerra Loca? Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 the soccer ball incident, you know, is infamous across Mexico. Again, I, I used some of the facts of it and, and adapted it to the novel, you know, Chewie was a very hard character to write over the course of you know years of writing because it's so painful because you watch this boy go from a minor crime incident into being traumatized into psychosis, you know, and then you have to write from a psychotic's point of view. So you're writing from a point of view of somebody who's doing horrible things and seeing what he's doing but has... No, can't connect them to any feeling at all you know
0: is that one of the reasons why early on in the book you're able to get into ochoa's head before he goes the head of the zetas before Mm -hmm. he goes off the deep end but later on you don't
1: yeah 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 you know part of it is an issue of length do you know what I mean? God, you know, if I'd written everything that I'd wanted to, then it's another couple of hundred pages longer. So I think some of the Ochoa sequences I might have used toward the end of the book, I did not, just for issues of length. But I wanted to set him up so that you understand at least where he came from.
0: When you were cutting, there's a character named Martin Tapia who stands apart because he's kind of the business end yeah. of uh, the various cartels. Yeah. Did you cut some of his material out?
1: Yeah, I think I did, if memory serves. Yeah, uh, because, you know, I was more interested in the wife, of Vet. But, yeah, I, I cut some of the Martin stuff out.
0: That's what I figured. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, these books, are, in my opinion, are shaped like footballs. Yeah. You know, so you, you start small, <laughs> and then they get fat. And then you have to taper off for them being small again. So when, when you're tapering off, when you're sort of coming out of, if you will, act two, you know, then, then you do start cutting and trimming and, and some of that.
0: The Wild Child blog, yes. is that real?
1: Well, it's not real, but it's certainly inspired by several blogs and bloggers. And...
0: Were the uh, Zetas out to kill the bloggers?
1: Absolutely. I mean, they slaughtered them.
0: And the town run by women, yep. is that a real town? Yes. And the women were there? were several of
1: those towns, not just one.
0: And these are the women who you say are kind of the heroes of the Mexican drug war?
1: I think so. I think so. Again, I have no way of accounting for this kind of courage. You know, a 19-year-old woman, uh, the four previous police chiefs of the town have been murdered, and she raises her hand and says, I'll take that job.
0: There's um, something called plazas. Yeah. Okay. And just a plaza is just an area. Yes. It doesn't mean an open space. Well, it
1: means both. I mean, in, in, in literally in Spanish, of course, it means that open space you know, yeah. around the town square. But in the, uh, in the narco language, it refers to a, a smuggling territory.
0: There also seems to be the idea that if the leftist party had won, then the war would have gotten worse.
1: Mm. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. The leftist party coming out of the 90s had been so totally co-opted by the cartels, especially the Sinaloa cartel, <laughs> that you might have reached this sort of what I call the Pax Narcotica Sinaloa perhaps a little earlier. When PON came in you know, and they really decided that, th- that to militarize
0: the war on drugs, it-, it was already too late. And where are we now?
1: We're in a lull. We're in a lull. Again, Sinaloa has won the war, maybe, maybe not with at least passive complicity of of the Mexican government, which also means, by the way, at least the passive complicity of the American government because we provide them with intelligence. Violence has started though to pick up again in the Tijuana area. There have been give or take about 100 murders in the last month or so that are drug related. Probably small gangs fighting small gangs over this corner or that corner, but the intelligence seems to indicate that the Sinaloa cartel, which used to operate east of San Diego out in the desert, now want to take over the Tijuana cartel's main routes in the city that go right up Highway 5, and so some of this killing might be a larger story. The Chapo escape, you know he might have been arrested because of collusion of one of his partners, because his partner's son was arrested in Arizona, da-da-da-da. So we have to see what happens now, whether that plays out, whether Chapo Guzman and Ismail Zambada are in conflict, in which case we're going to see a a Sinaloa war, which will then spread because everybody else will take advantage of that to get in, or whether the two of them have patched it up, and then I think this this sort of Sinaloa peace will probably last for a while.
0: Don Winslow. Now you've – well, you haven't completely put the cartel behind you because you're working on the, the films. But uh, have you begun working on another book?
1: Oh, sure. I'm working on two books right now. <laughs> Neither of them have anything to do with drugs.
0: Are both of them thrillers? Yeah,
1: yeah. Listen, I'm a crime writer, man. That's what I do. That's what I like.
0: To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves at kpfa.org or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.